Try to imagine with me, uh, if you would, um, it's a thought experiment here. Try to use your imagination. It's going to sound almost science fiction. Try to imagine that you are part of a collective that is going to draw up the guidelines to a brand new world. It's a hard thing to do because we're enculturated. We can't think of another world outside of us. Some of us in the room, maybe they can. But try with me to imagine a blank slate, a brand new world, and you are part of the team that are going to draw up the guidelines for living in this world. How would you want to run that world? What would be some of the things that would be inhabited by human beings? Okay, I don't want to get too far out there. But would be inhabited by human beings. What would be some of the rules that you would want to see that culture, that society abide by? You can yell it out if you want to. I'll take a minute here to, to do that. Any, any thoughts with regard to that? Well, like what, what would be non-negotiable for you? As a new world, we would have to do this. Okay, I'm going to try to find another group of people to run this new world with me, okay, because, because this, is, this is kind of trouble. Uh, no, nobody wants to shout it out? Oh, come on. You've got to yell something out because this doesn't make any sense if you don't say anything. Obey God. Obey God. Okay, so, so, so we, we're going to have a God in this new world. Okay, and we, and we want that God obeyed. Absolute truth. Absolute truth. See what happens, Wendy? You started it, now other people are going to talk. You go, girl. Way to go. So, okay, so we have a God, and he, this God has to be obeyed. We also want absolute truth, meaning... Okay, okay, so two plus two is going to be four for everybody. Anybody else? So we've got a God, and we've got... Oh, uh, an absolute, something called absolute truth. Is that it? Is this the new world we li- we're living in? Love. Love. Wendy's, Wendy's ready to start this whole new world right, right here, right now. <laughs> love, okay? We'll have, to, we'll have to describe what love is to the people, the inhabitants of this new world. And what is love? Help one another. Love, help will help one another. Okay, good. What else? Grace. Grace. Well, hold on a second now. I want to. I want to find out. Grace meaning like we're going to name all the females. Grace is that. What, is that what we're going to do? Like a great. What's grace? I mean, grace and forgiveness in this in this new world. Okay. Okay, so you're assuming that we're going to do bad stuff to one another, we're going to have to extend grace, and we're going to have to forgive one another. Wow. My world, nobody does anything wrong. Okay, I appreciate that. What else? Work together. Okay, like literally working together, building things together, cultures and and doing it together, everything. Okay, all right. Not as easy as you might think, huh? Okay, all right. I, in giving these some thought and anticipating some of the things you would, you would say, began to realize there's a couple of things that you have to realize here immediately. You find, tell me if this isn't correct, you find 
that when you start thinking along this kind of category, you automatically default to some form of the Ten Commandments. You start thinking about interpersonal relationships, how they inter interact with one another, and you want to put parameters around that that will enable human flourishing. And so, though not, not, nobody yelled out a specific commandment, well, loving God, obeying God is the top four, so, so I, I suppose in one sense that that's the case. It's also, it also struck me, because I, I was doing this thought experiment a couple of days ago, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get outside of how much I had been shaped by the culture of the Ten Commandments. And just realizing that this is a well-ordered society if these things are indeed followed. As you heard Rick just read, Moses tells the people that God has done this to test you, to see if, in fact, you will fear him. Will you live within the parameters that God has described? Because as you've heard me unfold this, this, these, these passages, to color outside of God's lines is to ask for nothing but trouble. And he's going to tell this to his people as this unfolds. You obey, you can expect blessing of some sort. Most of us, particularly native New Yorkers, are going to think, well, blessing, and I want it now. You color outside of these lines, and you can expect blessings and curses are on the other side. We see that unfolded, especially in Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, if, if you please. I found that to be a, a very fascinating thing, that our answers prove how deeply rooted the Ten Commandments are in our culture, even in what I would call is a post-Christian culture. We can't take for granted at all that there is even a fundamental understanding of the biblical narrative within the culture within which you and I live today. We see that in the school. This is my starting the eighth year. And even just eight years ago, um, the, the families that were coming, the children that were coming, had a reasonable something of a reasonable understanding. But literally with every year, and I, I've been drawing this, people have been in my office, they, they see me use my hand. For the eighth year, it's been a decline in in any awareness of the biblical narrative. And Ruth Ellen's sitting here, and she'll be able to give testimony, I'm sure. If, if you dialed it all the way back to when she began, some 30-plus years ago, clearly almost everybody that would show up, they, they were churched in some form. And so they knew the story of Adam and Eve and Moses and Noah and David and those, and those kinds of things. We can't assume that anymore. It proves, at least for the church culture, how much the Ten Commandments uh, have shaped us and formed us. That there is a God who has designed the world in which we live and that we have neighbors. And we, we hit on those. We introduced God and we also talked about working with one another. We also talked about forgiving one another. We are with, we are not alone. We have neighbors among whom we live and love. And as we've been saying throughout our time together, that's exactly how the Ten Commandments break down. If you please, the first four is our relationship to God, our love to God, and then five through ten is our relationship, our love to neighbor. And today's seventh commandment is no different from that. In Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Again, like last week, you shall not murder. Most of us sit here and go, Whew, haven't committed adultery, check off number seven, I'm good to go. And that's true as far as it goes, except... Jesus, you know, except Jesus, he's going to want to expand this. 
He's going to want to make it more than you. You're just not having sex with somebody who's married. You know, It's going to expand to something bigger than that, and it's going to expand even before we get to the New Testament. So when we hear the two words in the original language, you shall not commit adultery, we have to pump the brakes a little bit. We have to ask ourselves, okay, let's look at this wider biblical narrative, this wider storyline, and ask ourselves, how is it that God wants us to obey him in and through the giving of this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So here's, here's, your, here's your big idea, if you want to write it down. It's a commandment that at its heart forbids, we, we're doing that, it forbids and it requires, it forbids disordered desire. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, What it forbids is disordered desire. Now, I'm going to make a point in a moment or two here that that not all desire is bad. Clearly, there is such a thing as good desires. Not all desire, but at root, what it forbids is a disordered desire, which is really the nature of sin. We have disordered loves, disordered desires, something good that God has given to us, but it, we, we, it, it, it moves off the highway and goes down a wrong exit with regard to where it gets applied. And it's expressed in thought, word, and deed. You know that Jesus goes to the heart of the matter, and keeping the seventh commandment is not just simply bodily. Okay, Keeping, literally keeping the seventh commandment, I shall not commit adultery, I cannot have sex with a woman that is married outside of my own wife, okay? That I have never done, and that means I've kept the commandment. Except this is exactly what Jesus challenged the Pharisees on and the rabbinic schools when they said, you have heard it, he said to them, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus always borrowing to the heart of the matter. He's going to make the point that it's more than just not doing some physical act. And we're going to see that in in just a second. So it's a commandment that at its heart forbids disordered desire expressed in thought, word, or deed, which you can already begin to see how much this is going to cover. What it does require is designed delight. I'm keeping the Ds there together. It requires designed delight so that this desire rightly channeled brings delight rather than disaster if you please. And that's what it's really all about. It's the proper channeling of the good gifts that God has given to us. Okay, you good? Okay, so that's that's what's forbidden. That's what's required. But first, we get that first, right? We got to look at that first, okay? What does it mean to commit adultery? Come on, pastor, really? What do you think? We're in third grade here. What does it mean to commit adultery? You've already heard me refer to it at least several times. To commit adultery is to engage in sexual intercourse with a married person other than your spouse, Everybody in the room knows, the, knows the, the textbook definition to that, if you please. It is, not, it is not, though it is not the unpardonable sin, it is a violation of a sacred covenant. You heard me pray that. Marriage is a sacred covenant, whether you're in Christ or not. It's a creation ordinance, meaning God designed it before the fall, which means it's one of these ways that God blesses even unbelievers, even rock-ribbed atheists with marriage. And we know that some marriages, people who don't even believe in God, are fantastic. We also know 
sadly, like Christians as well, those marriages can go on the rocks in a myriad of ways. Not the unpardonable sin, but it is a violation of a sacred covenant, and it's an offense against God's good design for his image bearers. And this reveals the root of it all, namely pride. And we just basically God and say to him, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And your, your design is archaic. I mean, think about it today. Think about how long I would last if I, if I took my little soapbox and I went to Union Square this afternoon and I stood up with this text in my hand and I declared every form of sex outside of intercourse between one married man and one married woman, how long do you think I'd be able to stand there? How long? I mean, even some of you in the room are scoffing. To think about how far we've strayed from God's good design for his people and for his glory. Now I'm just sounding like an old-fashioned fundamentalist Baptist right now. We've come to this. It is an offense against God's good design for his image bearers, and therefore to commit adultery is to sin against our creator God. All sin at its root is against God, as well as other human beings. That's why David in chapter 51 of the Psalms said, against you have I sinned, when he spoke of his adultery. So serious is adultery among other sexual sins. Leviticus 20.10 tells us that in the Old Testament, adultery brought about the death penalty. You were caught in adultery, you, you were stoned. The death penalty was administered. So sacred was that relationship. And so at the top of the pyramid of sexual sins, of which there are many, But the Bible also uses the word more broadly. The word adultery occurs over 30 times in the Old Testament, and fully one-third of those usages, it's used metaphorically and graphically. These are the PG-13 sections of the Old Testament. Some of them not easy reading for family devotionals before you tuck the kids in bed at night. I refer here especially to, say, Jeremiah chapter 3, uh, Ezekiel 23. Ezekiel 23 is not an easy chapter. The entire book of Hosea uses as its motif marriage and adultery. And the things that God puts his prophet through is an astounding thing. So it expands this idea, even in the Old Testament, to move beyond the physical to include the spiritual. So to sin against God is to commit adultery, spiritual adultery. It's a jarring category to have, and I'm going to read a a real amazing quote near the end here in just a few minutes, but it's a jarring category to reorient the way that we think about sin. When you think about sin, you think about missing the mark or doing something that's against the revealed will, the moral will of God, True, good, solid. But here's a biblical category for you to expand your thinking with regard to the devastation of sin. To sin against God is to go after another lover. It's like cheating on your spouse. 
that pierced me. And man, oh man, did it make me swallow real hard at the thoughts of it when I read that quote earlier this week and thought, man, how many times have I looked at this? How many times have I read this? And now it, it, it hit me afresh. To sin against God is like me committing adultery against my wife. That got my attention. It's that serious. Jesus, as always, goes to the heart of the matter. Matthew chapter 5, you already heard me refer to that. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. He teaches there that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her where? In the bed? On the street corner? On the beach? Where? In his heart. You see the words? With lustful intent, guilty of adultery in his heart. Like we said already, Jesus goes to the core of the matter here and says, listen, Pharisee, if you think that just because you haven't shacked up with another woman that's not your wife, you've kept this commandment, think again. I'm going to go out on a small limb here and assume that every man if not every woman in the room knows what the wandering eye is all about. But notice what he says, with lustful intent. This isn't acknowledging a good-looking woman or a good-looking man walking by. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus talks about the gaze, the dwelling, the up and down the mind game that goes with that. Jesus said, if that's what we're talking about here, then you've committed, you've broken the seventh commandment. You've committed adultery in your heart, which is what Jesus is always after. Because like I say all the time in this pulpit, we can alter behavior. The law alters behavior. Only grace changes the heart. Okay, so that's the but first. Now, following from here, a couple of quick pieces together, and watch how it goes to this table. The seventh commandment forbids, as I've said, disordered desire. Not any desire, disordered desire. A desire that goes sideways, not toward its designed goal. And God commands his people not to commit adultery. He's informing us to stay in our lane. I'm going to read from the Proverbs here in just a second. He informs us to stay in our lane, to treat people with respect and honor rather than to objectify them. For me to linger on another woman, for me to gaze upon an image of another woman and to do particular things in my mind with that other woman is to objectify that person. It's to reduce them to an object. And I sin against that image bearer. I sin against my wife in so doing those things. Stay in our lane, or as Solomon says in the Proverbs, drink from your own cisterns. We're to treat people with respect and with honor. If you're married, you're off limits to me. I'm married, I'm off limits to you. It doesn't mean that you can't develop a robust friendship 
It does mean, however, that there are lines that cannot be crossed. Despite the messaging, despite the messaging of our pornified culture, God's image bearers and their relationships, whether they're single or married, are designed with limits for our good. That, this, is, this is the most infuriating part of these kinds of teaching. It's for our good. And where, where you feel your back arching, where you feel the hair on the back of your head standing up, that's the world in which we live. Like, you can't tell me what is good for me. You can't legislate morality. You can't tell me what is best for me. I have the right to determine what is best for me. So we want to live without limits. Now, how's that worked out for you? And for us as a society, for us as a culture, as I said last week, this culture in which we live is still an abortion culture. There's blood on our hands. We will give an account for that. The same is, holds true with regard to this commandment as well. We've gone entirely sideways of God's sexual ethic and his design for human flourishing. And we think that we flourish because we can express ourselves in any way that we want. And the truth of the matter is that we're, we're outside of the lines. And though it may feel good and it may feel free, the lie is that we're dancing on our own grave. Designed with our limits. Now watch this. Designed with God's limits for our good and for the good of Staten Island. Let me get right on the ground here. Do you realize as a married person that your marriage functioning properly actually is a good thing for Staten Island? When, when the limits are exceeded, the fabric of Staten Island begins to unravel. And I'm being quite intentional here by repeating Staten Island just to bring it home. Rather than, because my original writing of this, it said our society, our culture. And we throw those words around, and we don't know how to define that. Just this morass, like, ugh. But if I say Staten Island, and you start to think about, wait a minute, the good of Staten Island rides somewhat on my marriage? How does that work? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Uh, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay? Fascinating thing that Paul does here. Those are all singular. Now watch this. In 19, now, do you not know that your body, now it's a corporate word. Now it's plural. Now he's talking about your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit within, within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What Paul is saying is that if in the body of Christ there are people living sexually immoral lives, it's bad news for the church. 
And he goes on to expand to say that if it's bad news for the church, it's going to be bad news for the society. You hear even, even unregenerate sociologists tell you that part of the reason why Staten Island and other cultures unravel is because the family is being disintegrated. I take it a step further than those sociologists and tell you, even more importantly, Staten Island has bad news not only if the family is disintegrated, but even more so if the church is disintegrated. And Staten Island and its spirit, if you please, is utterly unaware that any illness within the body of Christ is bad news for them. If Staten Island truly wanted to flourish, they would want the church to flourish. But insofar as they don't, is exactly where there's a spiritual warfare front line. Paul obviously is aware of the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, I won't take the time to go through all of these, but you want to write them down. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, almost entirely, only one little paragraph that isn't, 5, 6, and 7 of Proverbs deals exclusively with adultery. Now, Proverbs, father writing to son about the wisdom of wisdom. Don't disregard the teaching of father. Don't disregard the teaching of mother. Why? Because it'll preserve your life. And then in chapter 5, he, he revs it up, beginning the entire chapter. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, keep, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not even know it. That's the nature of pornography. And let's be fair here. Pornography is primarily a male thing, but it's not exclusively so. But here, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, we have ancient wisdom telling us exactly what it is that we're looking at. In chapter 6, he picks it back up in verse 20. Keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching, bind them on your heart, always tie them around your neck, let them lead you. 25 of Proverbs 6, do not desire her beauty in your heart, do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. I can remember reading those words as a young man. They terrified me. Built a wall for me. Sometimes I've scaled that wall. Thank God, not a whole lot. But that imagery is literally always burned in my, 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 my thoughts. You, you get close to fire, you're going to get burned. And that's right there. You, you're going to mess around with a woman that's not your wife. You're going to get burned. And we think we can't. Why? Because the, well, the enemy hides, shows the bait and hides the hook. 
In chapter 7, the entire chapter is given over to warning against the adulteress. Paul knew the wisdom tradition quite well. In other words, as we've been saying, the problem isn't only external, physical. It's also internal, non-physical. You heard me say that to you in Matthew 5, 28, where Jesus talks about the lustful intent. You also heard me read Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 20 last week, with regard to those things that come out of the heart is what makes a man unclean. And one of those things in that list is not only murder, but also adultery. I, had, I can remember this, this day distinctly. In graduate school, you, you had to go through preaching classes, and there were these small classrooms in the basement of the chapel where I went to school. A group of guys, mostly guys, would go into the room, and you would preach, a little makeshift pulpit, you'd preach in front of the class, and you'd get graded for this, and, and so on and so forth. I don't, and, then, and then I ended up teaching that. I was asked to be a teaching fellow and stay, and then end up teaching those kinds of things. So I got to judge other people and criticize them. But I'll never forget, close friend of mine, friend to this day, the only sermon I re- I don't even remember my own, the only sermon that I remember of all that I sat through was this sermon by, that my friend gave. And I'll never forget it. Cover the children's ears. He preached on sexual purity. And he asked this enormously provocative question. And he said, when it comes to adultery, he said, what is the offending appendage? And it made us blush because you immediately think what you do. And then he made this profound point. To this day, I remember it. And the only one I remember it, he said, it's not what you think it is. He said, in adultery, this is the offending appendage. And like it just impacted you, it impacted me that day as well. And it reminded me that it's really not just about the physicality, but it's about the thought processes that get you to that point. Another friend of mine says, sin has a history. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll commit adultery today. That's what it forbids, what it requires. Let's begin to prepare our hearts and minds for this. What it requires is designed delight. If the seventh commandment forbids disordered desire, it requires designed delight. Seventh commandment requires us to honor the limits that God has ordained for his creation, for his image bearers, to honor fathers and mothers, as well as to honor the mystery of marriage. As I said to you, not all desire is disordered. Properly channeled desire is by design a delight. Let me give you one passage. You want to write down Galatians 5.17. Galatians 5.17 says there's this internal war. The desires of the flesh, bad, war against what? The desires of the spirit, 
Same word. So what you want to pray, and what I'm praying for you, is that your desires would be those of the spirit and not of the flesh. And insofar as this is a struggle for any of us, that's what we want to be asking God with our finger on Galatians 5.17. You've given, you've, you've created me as a feeling image bearer. I'm not immune to the beauty in other women and men and image bearers. However, let it forever be that that desire that you've given to me be channeled exclusively in this sense toward my wife and not toward another woman in the sense that I would want to commit adultery. Give me the desires of the spirit. So in those quiet moments when you think nobody's seeing you and you're either on your phone or your laptop and the room is dark and your spouse is nowhere to be found and you're going places where you should not be going, I want Galatians 5.17 to snap into your brain. And for you to see in front of you where the desires of the flesh are going to go as opposed to the desires of the spirit. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, It is a good thing for a man to desire to be a leader. I want to be an elder. That's what Paul's telling Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 1. That's a good desire. It can be perverted but it's a good desire. Hebrews 6.11, the pastor desires for his people to mature. That's a good desire. I have it. And I pray that it never gets perverted. I desire daily for each and every one of you to become more like Jesus. Okay. So to the table. We move from disordered desire to designed delight. What the seventh commandment does, in my limited time here, the seventh commandment does, it points us to a far greater relationship. And we ought to expect that out of every one of the commandments. It stands in its present context, but it also points us to something even greater, a far greater relationship, even greater and more mysterious than the marriage bond between a husband and, and wife. It pains me to think about it, but at some point in time, my wife and I will not be married. One of us is going to die, breaking the marriage covenant. But even if we are to die together and enter into glory at the same time, we will not be married in the heavenly realms. Why? Because my relationship with her in the new heavens and the new earth will be intimate beyond what we've even known as a couple for these many years. It's a staggering reality. And it makes me long for the things of heaven if you've tasted of anything like that. Think about the desires that you've had fulfilled. That cannoli that you found at the perfect bakery on Staten Island. That pasta that your mother used to make. I I joke. And it is kind of fun. But they're little If you think this marinara is good. Ha! Ha! If you think this sex is good, you're not going to have it in the new heavens and the new earth, but the joy that you're going to experience is going to make that feel like a day. You can put the blank in there. 
It's this relationship that we celebrate as we come to the table. I really want to provoke you here in the most positive ways because I want you to see this table in a much more intimate and profound way. Because the intimacy of this meal that God desires for you surpasses that of the intimacy that we share as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We begin, as I said to you, we begin with repentance. And we're going to end with rejoicing. Here's the quote that I referred to a little bit earlier. Listen, listen to how staggering this is. This is from John Frame in a book that he wrote called The Doctrine of the Christian Life. These long sections on all ten commandments. I'm deeply indebted to Dr. Frame. All sin is unfaithfulness to God. Spiritual adultery. So the seventh commandment, like the others, actually covers all of life from its particular perspective. Whenever we sin, we can think of it as marital unfaithfulness. And we should, and we should think of it that way, better to understand our radical need of forgiveness from our heavenly husband. Are you with me? This is what you've heard me say. I'm, I'm old school. I'm a Puritan along these lines. You won't see the beauty of the grace of Jesus until you taste the horror of your sin. And I don't apologize for that. This is the law and the gospel. And not until you see in stark relief the horror of your sin will Jesus be fantastic. And that's part of the problem. Sin has been so soft-pedaled that Jesus is not that big a deal. If I'm not that bad, then I just need Jesus to fluff up the pillows a little bit. Your sin has separated you from a holy God. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. If you're sitting here today or watching me online and you have not come in repentance, a turning from your current ways to follow the new way in Christ Jesus, if you are not doing that, you are dead. You may feel very much alive. You may be living the life. You may think you've got it all. It's the biggest trick that you've ever received. Don't laugh me off and don't think of something like I'm outside the box here. This is what you need to reckon with. And when you understand your radical need for forgiveness, now, now, Jesus is in his proper place. This is how Frame finishes the quote. The seventh commandment's perspective on sin is a radically personal perspective presented in vivid sexual imagery. And here's the line. It yields a powerful motivation for repentance. My aim in this next-to-last point is to reveal to you a new powerful motivation to repent. Because now, maybe now, you're beginning to think of your sin as marital unfaithfulness to the one to whom you're betrothed. Are you with me? Are you feeling that? 
Are you also screaming for Jesus? The lover of your soul. We begin with repentance. We're done. We end. We end with rejoicing. The Christian life is repentant rejoicing. Not just one of them, both. I've been around too many Christians for whom the Christian life is misery. Nothing but repentance. There's no joy anywhere. And I've been around probably more Christians for whom the Christian life is what psychologists are now calling positive toxicity. We can't see any bad anywhere. Everything is positive to the point where we don't even know how to deal with grieving. You can be so positive, it could be toxic. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about rejoicing. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Either way, when you're able to say, it is well with my soul, you've got the balance between repentance and rejoicing. Revelation 19, 7 and 9. Have your communion elements in your hand, because this is where we're going to segue to finish our service. We end with rejoicing. And here's the passage. I'm merely going to read it for you. Revelation 19, 7 and 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us. That's you. That's me. It was granted her, you and me, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, John, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage is a big deal. It's a big deal because it's also used in an expansive kind of way to help us understand the nature of our relationship with our holy God and a son that he sent to shed his blood to seal the marriage covenant between him and us. So even if you're in this room today or on line somewhere, and you're single, divorced, not married, you are married to Jesus Christ. And you've been given a wedding gown that is pure white, representing holiness and purity. And will one day, this is vivid imagery, one day when he returns, his bride, collectively, will welcome him. And you ain't been to a wedding reception until you've been to this one. So I ask you, I ask you, will you accept the invitation? I pray you already have. If you have not, the invitation stands for you to come to this table. This is, the this is the representation of that day that's coming. 
You say, what a meager representation it is. It is. It's part of the nature of living in the fallen world in which we do, but yet God still continues to speak to us in and through these elements as well. This is a foretaste. You Staten Island Italians, this is the antipast. And if this brings some sort of sweetness to your lips, oh my, my, my. Oh my, my, my. What a day that is going to be. You can't get to rejoicing without repentance. You move from repentance to rejoicing in anticipation of one day, meaning the bridegroom who is now preparing you for that day and for this marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll quiet our hearts before you, Father, and we'll ask for you to meet us in this place. We'll ask for you to humble us and to reveal to us where we have been adulterous, where we have chased after other lovers, we've chased after other things or other people or other relationships that we thought would provide us with intimacy, that we thought would provide us with meaning and identity. Please have mercy on us and help us to rediscover who we are, not only individually, but also as a church. Help us to rediscover our calling. Help us to see more broadly and to understand that the well-being of Staten Island is tied up with the well-being of the body of Christ on Staten Island. And Lord, I pray that you'd bring healing to the churches, that you would enable us to overcome petty divisions, the work of the enemy right now to uglify the church. Help us to see the brilliance of the wedding gowns. Help us to see the brilliance, supremely more importantly, help us to see the brilliance of the bridegroom. And may we not tarry in getting ready. This passage goes on to tell us that we have been prepared for good works that will adorn us in the last day. Church, be still for a moment or two. Enjoy the presence of the Lord and one another, asking him to forgive you for your sin, but to lead you to rejoicing as well, to rejoice in the one who has suffered for you that you might be pure.